uh, the middle of the week and plenty going on on RTE Radio 1 from the day. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Yeah, of course I understand. Even if I'm staying now and you bring me a 50 guy from a different country, I don't know them. I don't know their culture. I don't know their language. One in my town. So what is there? If we can meet with the local people, that's much better from the government. So we know each other. We, they're going to know we are decent people. In my mother's poorest day, she never put second-hand clothes on us. Not even right, hand-me-downs from within sister. the family? Yeah, from yeah, my sisters and brothers, but not from strangers. Colour is therapy, you know. Colour is, is happiness. Colour is fun. Colour is joy. Um, and I like to share colour. Yeah. You know, I think I see the world in, in, in colours. And we'll start in the morning and on today with Claire Byrne. John Cook was reporting from Claire on the protests about refugee accommodation and McGowna House. First today, a meeting is taking place this morning in Clare involving public representatives in the county and the Minister for Integration, Roderick O'Gorman, to discuss the local opposition to the arrival of a group of asylum seekers at a building in Inch. Now, as it stands, a blockade which was set up on Monday night outside the McGowna House property remains in place and our report John Cook is back there this morning for us. Good morning, John. So what's happening? Good morning, Claire. Well, McGowna House in Inch is a much calmer place today, though the bollards and signs saying local access only remain blocking the winding by road from the Ennis to Kilmaley route. It remains in place there. Locals insist no resolution has been found despite talks with management and local politicians last evening. So their peaceful protests continues. Some of the men seeking asylum who left the premises on foot yesterday telling me they were headed back to the City West Hotel 231 kilometres away have returned. Others continued on that journey to Dublin I'm told and management here told me this morning that 21 men slept in the three holiday homes beside the hotel last night. They expect others to come back so they weren't clear on exact numbers and those figures are not confirmed. This morning, the men are due to be taken uh, by, the lo- uh, by a bus, the bus has just arrived indeed, to the local Intrio office in the town of Ennis, eight kilometres away, where they can access local Department of Social Protection services. Some of the men are coming out to board the bus now as I speak to you. And as they were walking across in the last while after their uh, breakfast at the hotel building, across from their houses where they slept, One asylum seeker who asked not to give his name or nationality told me about conditions here last night. It was okay, it's fine, nothing happened last night. Everything Uh quiet for last night, yeah. Uh Some men left yesterday, but you believe that more than 20 are still here? Yeah, I think so. I think there is more than 20 here. Uh Not everyone left. You decided to stay? I decided to stay, yes. Uh Because where I should go, they're not going to let us sleep in City West. And if I left, I'm going to lose this place, so where I should go. You'd know where else to go, I understand. Exactly. And there is already many people sleeping in the street in Dublin. That's what I hear. We don't know nothing here. We don't have news. And can I ask, how are the houses that you're staying in? There's, there was as many as 11 people in some of these houses. It's not so good, but we, we can survive for now. If they do more service and they give us more like a clean stuff and more hot water, and, you know, the normal stuff, the basic stuff to live. So we can deal. Kitchen maybe to uh-huh. cook something. Some guys like to cook, you know. We're going to do our own things if you give me the material. Uh-huh. But you get food here at the hotel. Yeah, Is that okay? Get, yeah, we get food, yeah. And how many people sleep in each room? Uh, it's, it's, it's difficult, like five and three and three. Every room, like okay. the big rooms, it's five, not small rooms. Does everybody have a bed? 
Yeah, everybody have a bed here. Yeah. Is it like a bunk bed or just a mattress on the floor? Or? No, 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 it's a bed. What do you think of this place? It's quiet. I know you tried to find the town nearby. Would you be happy place? to stay here? Yeah, happy. Lovely place. Uh-huh. Yeah. And do you think you could live here, that it, it could work out? Maybe if we meet the local people, yeah, we can live for sure. Because I meet some nice people in the road when I try to leave. And they let me come back and they apologize for everything is happening. That's the lo- local Irish people. And they even give us a suite and they said we're going to try to get the transport for you and everything. And they, they let us to come down and say everything it will be all right. For the they were the Claire immigrant yeah. support workers. Yes, yeah, I met thank them. thank you so yeah. much. So you are getting to know some of the people, even the protesters, and you feel things could work out here. There's a meeting this morning of politicians to decide what happens next, a government meeting. What do you hope? Do you hope it will work out that you can stay here? Uh, yeah, I hope so. Why not? Where, where else we can go? Many people sleep in the street. Like, we must, like, appreciate what they give us here. Even if it's far, yeah, we know it's far and nothing is here. But let's work out, like, all together. Let's help each other, you know. Mm-hmm. We must come down and wait and have some passion. And they must work out for us, the government, for sure. Not the local people, like. They're not their mistake because they... And one time now you put 50 guys here, so... Uh-huh. That's a shock for them. So we're sorry for them. So you understand their protest, but you hope the government can sort it out. Yeah, of course I I understand. Even if I'm staying now and you bring me a 50 guy from a different country, I don't know them. Mm -hmm. I don't know their culture. I don't know their language. One in my town. Uh So what is that? You know? I, 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 I think... If we can meet with the local people, that's much better from the government. Okay. So we know each other. We, they're going to know we are decent people. And Claire asked John Cook about the meeting. Well, many I met this morning are talking about that meeting. It's due to be held online. We understand between Minister Roderick O'Gorman and his department officials uh, and local TDs and senators from Clare in the next hour. But what will emerge from that meeting may not be what locals here are seeking, as some would like the minister and his officials to engage directly with them, possibly on assurances that no more asylum-seeking men would be sent here. The total number planned for the site originally was 69. What number locals would be willing to accept is unclear, and they say it depends on resources or services that could be offered to support the community, they told me, as neighbours came to relieve those who'd manned the blocked roads overnight. Uh, Some of the men and women uh, leaving their ship to go to work or to sleep after uh, manning the roads overnight, as local resident Rory Colleen explains to me. We have a kind of united front. That, um, we need to get a suitable resolution to this, and um, the only way we're going to get it is to continue the, prote- uh, the protest. It's been reported it's a blockade. It's not really a blockade. Well, you're still blocking the road, so I suppose we're, that is a blockade. Well, we're just kind of, we're trying to keep it a local protest. There's a lot of people trying to get involved here now that have no local connections and it, we feel the, it might, not the best thing for the protest. At the minute. Uh-huh. It's a local protest. Okay. There's no issues. The guards have no issues. Watch call. Mm-hmm. As you can see, there aren't even uh-huh. guards. What is the resolution you're looking for, though? Are you trying to close down this asylum-seeking accommodation centre? Um, I, I can't speak for everyone now, but um, it's just a bit of common sense, really. Like what six, is the resolution you're looking for? Um, a suitable number of people for the services suitable to the area. Like, you can't put 69 people into an area. Mm-hmm. You see it here yourself yesterday, 18 of them wanted to leave, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't let them leave. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's not fair. We're not blocking them. Well, some men did leave and walked out onto a very busy winding <laughs> road. Yeah. Got lifts, some of them I know, and some came back as well, we understand. Are you, you're saying you'd be willing to accept a certain number of male asylum seekers here. How many? 
I couldn't be able to put a figure on it. All depends on the services provided. And what do they want to be here? The boys here, we were talking to them yesterday and I brought two of them to the shop. They don't want to be here. Uh-huh. They wanted to go to the city centre. The men I've spoken to say they've nowhere else to go. You can see a way whereby you would welcome some of them into your community. If they want to be here and if the services provided is up to scratch and they have something to do. They don't want to be sitting here doing nothing, not even a television, as the guy said, you know what I mean? It falls next to see what Minister Roderick O'Gorman might have to say in this meeting with uh, TDs and senators from this region. What do you want to hear out of that meeting this morning? I'm not sure what I want to hear because... um, Well, is it a number? Is it a number and a guarantee to tell you that only these men will stay here and no more will come? Uh, It's not even that. There's no point keeping lads here that don't want to be here. Like It's, uh, It's a very unfair system. That's, what, what, uh, would it, what would it take? Uh, what would it take to open this road, Rory? What would it take to open this road? I don't know. I just go, I'll just go back to a previous point. You're trying to put a number like these are people. This is a number. Joe, uh-huh. if I go no, into the market, I, I can buy twenty cattle. Like it's not. I, I would never. I would never talk about it in I those know, terms. No, I'm not trying to put a number on it. It seems yeah. clear to me your community has a number in mind of how no, many people you would accept no. here. You said you wouldn't accept sixty nine. Will yeah, you but, accept thirty three or twenty? As some people are saying, I can't put a number on it because it all depends on what that number comes with services, are they happy being here? So is there anything Minister Roderick O'Gorman can say to your local political representatives today that will lift this protest blockade, you don't like calling it that, but it is, He's a smarter that, man that can he, end this protest? What, he's what? a smarter man than me. Maybe he has a resolution. He must have come across this before. Mm-hmm. It's his job. He caused this problem. It's up to him to resolve the problem. We didn't cause this problem. You'd still yeah. like him to come? Yeah. Why not? Mm-hmm. Come for a walk in the countryside. That's, that's all I'd That's say. your message to the Minister. Come and talk to us. Come and talk to us here. And Rory, finally, how long are you willing to, to maintain this protest? I know people are very tired this morning. Indefinitely. People are tired, they're going home, and there's plenty more coming. Rory Colleen speaking to John Cook in Clare for Today with Clare Byrne. And in the afternoon, Liveline was dominated by the topic of fast fashion and consumerism and the circular economy. Column's first caller was Becky, a big fan of Sheen. Oh, Sheen is a lifesaver for me anyway. Um, so uh, it's an online shop that has kids' clothes, adults' clothes, household items, um, gadgets and gizmos. I kind of use it for everything, to be honest. Right, what's the last thing you bought on it? Yesterday I ordered outdoor cushion covers for my garden. Waterproof outdoor cushion covers. Right, so that's not very exciting for pa- patio and garden furniture. But yeah. what else? Where have you found it in particular a lifesaver? Uh, well, probably the the la- the biggest things I've been buying lately was um, holiday clothes and summer clothes for me and the kids. Um, we went away recently, so I was able to pack their suitcases while shopping online from home, and it was really cost effective as well. All right, well, how, how many of you are there? Walk us through the list of what you had to buy there. Well, so there's myself, my um, 14-year-old daughter, my 6-year-old daughter and my 8-year-old son. So we were able to get everything on it. Um, I was able to get some really cute matching outfits for them. Um, the little one wants to match with me and her sister, so we were able to get, you know, mammy dresses and the little girl's dress to match and stuff like that. Uh, matching bikinis, the whole lot. Right, and how long have you been shopping on Sheen? I'm probably using Sheen probably the last year, maybe two years, I'd say. But probably more so now because the kids are that bit older 
and they're more demanding. They want certain things. And if we were going to an event, I can just go on, get little dresses and outfits for as little as 15 euros sometimes. And how quick is the delivery? Uh, Last year, it used to take two or three weeks. And I've noticed lately the orders have probably come within a week for me. So it's brilliant. So what would have happened before this? I mean, if you wanted to take your youngest kid out, your teenager and yourself and go around the shops and buy all of this stuff from the high street retailer, how long would it have taken and, you know, how how much shopping would have been required? Well, to be honest, I I would have had to take them all separately. Um, So there would have been three trips. Um, It would have cost me, I'd say, triple, if, if not more, the price. Um, and I find with kids, the, the clothes get destroyed anyway, you know, so you're paying high prices and they're still staining and you're getting grubby and you kind of only get one or two wears out of things anyway with them. Right. So now if, if I want to go to an event or if we have a family gathering or something that I know is coming up, we sit down, they pick the outfits that they want. They love shopping with me and putting the stuff in the basket. I order it and within a week it's there, ready to go. Well, that's Becky. Then Mary called Colm. Um, yeah, I run a community-based swap shop here in Crumlin in Dublin. And, of course, I totally understand that people will use what's affordable and accessible. Um, I think people look at sustainable options and say, oh, that's just out of my price range and it's completely inconvenient for me. So with Change Clothes Coming, we just got set up last October with a little bit of funding from Creative Ireland and we're trying to make sustainable clothing both affordable and accessible through our monthly clothing swaps. And if you pay a fiver with us, you can swap your entire wardrobe with us so you can swap as many items as you like and get items back for them. We just ask that the clothes are in good to new condition and, you know, have no holes. And, and what kind of clothes are you talking about? So what, what kind of clothes do you stock? When you say swapping your entire wardrobe, are you talking everything from coats to trousers to anything else? Yeah, absolutely. Occasion wear as well. Kids wear, men's, women's, everything in between. Right, but it, when it comes to the likes of, of swimwear and, and stuff that's mm. more next to the skin, it might be more difficult to provide that, would it? Yeah, 100%. I guess we don't have, you know, the solution for things like underwear, swimwear and nightwear. That's kind of something we need to think about further. But for all the kind of day-to-day stuff, we can cover that. And our goal is to have a swap shop, you know, that's open seven days a week. So we're just saving up for that. And I think if something like Change Clothes was available in every area, you know, we'd be able to have a great solution. We could roll out to ultra-fast fashion and it is kind of disheartening because we are a community enterprise and we don't receive any funding at the moment. And then you see, like, as you mentioned, the launch of Sheehan's HQ in Dublin being heavily supported by government. And we did have the Circular Economy Act launched here last summer, but we're not seeing funding being distributed at community level to come up with solutions that are, you know, affordable and sustainable and create great jobs as well. Like, I don't think jobs have to be created at the expense of slave labour and climate change, but you know, alternative options do have to be supported and I don't think it's up to individuals to change when there's no viable, affordable and sustainable options really available or they're just not funded. You know, they, they do exist, but we don't have the money to to expand or to promote what we are doing. Well, that's Mary. Then Maria called Colm about shopping on Sheen. I love it. And what kind of stuff I, do you buy on it? Uh, jeans, dresses, swimwear. 
the meeting. Right. And are you buying for, are you similar to Becky, who we heard from there earlier? Are you, are, are you buying for a family no, it's on just it? For, yes. No, it's just for me. Okay, well, what, 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 how did you come across it, and what was it that first attracted you? Was it, was it the price? I, the price, definitely the price. So you just were searching online for um, clothing, and yes. this popped up as the most uh, competitive yeah, price? affordable, and it, the clothes are lovely. They're really good quality, I think, anyway. And I see young children going around in them, and they look amazing. So. And how long uh, have you been shopping on it? About two years. And what are your options in terms of, you know, if if uh, issues around fast fashion or that, where to inform no. your... No, you, you, this is this is the price no. range you can afford right. to shop yeah. in, is it? Yeah, yes, definitely. And do you find it much cheaper than high street stores, the big... Yes, definitely. Oh, God, yes. A lot cheaper. And how important I... is it, you know, to buy new clothes well, and restore very, very your wardrobe? Important very important to people on lower wages and even people that are not that are on good salaries they're wearing it because you do know it stands out I think anyway so when you're so walking I, I, when you're walking down the street or you're you're out and about shopping yeah, you, you spot know. it do you yeah, yeah. Uh, how do you know yeah. it oh it's just looks really classy and you know their wages aren't high as big business people and people working in big offices, you know, and they just look amazing. They really do, and the colours, everything. I mean, go into down stores and look at a jacket, the price. I mean, it's crazy, the price. And since this cost of living has gone up, it's absolutely madness. I mean, there's no way people can afford the price of clothes. And if they're children, it has to be the best. How do you mean? Well, the cost for dress-out children is very reasonable. And how often would Even you... pennies are amazing. And how important is it in terms of, I mean, do you, do you think people just enjoy the boost of shopping online? Do you think, you know, they buy the bare minimum or do you think they're, they're shopping as the hobby of shopping? Which is it, do you think? I think it's the cost. Um, affordable. Like, try pay bills and keep children dressed. Children want to look well. They want to, and they will always look amazing in sheen clothing. So that's just... And what kind of wear do you get out of the clothes? Well, it's good enough for me. I get long enough out of it for what I need it. And then I pass it on, so it's not that it's going in the bins or someone else will use it. And Colm asked Maria about buying second-hand. Maria, is there an option for you to buy the clothes you need to buy on a second-hand basis anywhere near you? Is that an option you'd be attracted no. to? No, I wouldn't be attracted to it. And I wouldn't, there are loads of shops, but I just, I like something new. I work. And I think I can, I can pay for something new and I, I think I deserve something new. I just don't like second and so I'm sorry. I just, I couldn't. I couldn't wear them. And do you pass your clothes on to second-hand shops or do you yes. just do it within the family? Yes, no, I do. I do pass them all on, but I just couldn't wear second-hand. I, I just can't.
Right, not just I not look for around the shops. No, it's not just. I have just have a thing about secondhand clothes. Right, and the, the, the I never had to in my mother's poorest day. She never put secondhand clothes on us. Not even right, hand me downs from, from within sister. the family. Yeah, from yeah, my sisters and brothers, but not from strangers. She never went out and got strangers' clothes and put them on us. I never remember putting secondhand. Yeah, my sister's clothes, yes, but. And I go into secondhand shops, but. And I see loads of people, but I just can't do it. I, and what, yeah, what is it about that? What, why, why isn't it for you? What's, I think maybe what's if the, the barrier? If the clothes were cleaned, <laughs> if they were freshly cleaned, if they charged more and they were freshly cleaned and they were more organised, maybe, yeah. But I just go in and there's. The clothes are everywhere and they're not freshly cleaned and. Oh, I just have a thing. I know you can bring it home and wash it, but I just have this thing about secondhand clothes. I don't wear it. Then Christina called. She always buys secondhand. I don't mean to to insult anyone, but I'm actually shaking at the thought that it's like um, if anyone was judging me because they thought I was poor or because that's definitely not the case. Um, and it, does, it doesn't, just from the last person's point, um, that's, it's such a privileged way of thinking um, to think that I've never had to wear, you know, secondhand before. And we really, really need to change that that's mindset. That's not it's, I just, if the clothes were freshly cleaned and organised, oh, I wouldn't know. I, 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 I take I what I need when extra. I go and I wash it. Yeah. Yeah, well, I you can, just... You can, you can pay extra to dry clean it, you know, and it's... And it's, um, it's you know, it's such a great way to uh, sorry to um, not at all. You're you're you're, you're you're juggling there, Christina. But uh, just in terms of okay. just in terms of kitting out kids and yourself, I mean, yes. do do you mm-hmm. have the choice you're looking for when you're shopping uh, in secondhand clothes shops? Uh, absolutely. Now, um, I don't I I don't really shop for myself as much because I really re- I really use what I have. But I've got great sister-in-laws to pass on their clothes, and um, and when I see something in the charity shop. Um, uh, I, I use it a lot, um, and I pass. You know, I winter, my summer, and I you know transition, pack away everything, and then and it's like new again for me. But my daughters, especially because you know they grow, kids grow to clothes so quickly. There is, oh, I can't, I can't even explain how much clothes is out there. Like, and it's free. It's nothing to do with you know Shane's so cheap and it's so affordable. It's really not a cost to the world, and these clothes are free and. My daughter gets complimented on her clothes all the time. Um, and it's an environmental stuff. concern for you there. You, you said, you know, it's 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 a comes at a cost to the world. You're talking about the the, the cost, is it, of, of dumping clothes on the water consumption of manufacturing fashion and the like. Absolutely, it's that. And um, my daughter and my children um, growing up and getting rid of that old mindset of uh, I need to buy new. And also um, that they learn that whole you know sharing so even their toys are second hand they give their toys I let them know the boys and girls give you that dress you do love it and you know and people still compliment her on her clothes like I can't express enough how um, important it is to really get rid of this mindset That's Christina on the live line with Colm O'Mungoyne And in the morning on Today with Claire Byrne, it's coming to the end of an era for the Brennan brothers in Kenmare. Hoteliers Francis and John Brennan join me from Kenmare this morning. Good morning to you both. Hi Claire, how are you? Lovely to talk to you. Big news, 
on the front of our newspapers this morning. Four decades. Francis, you might start us off running right. the Park Hotel in Kenmare and you're selling up. So why? Yes. Selling up. Well, <laughs> I suppose if I say I went from black hair to 100% grey in 40 years. So... <laughs> That'll be one of, the, one of the things. No, not at all. I Listen, funny enough, I had done a plan many years ago uh, that I was going to retire at uh, 55. So I'm actually 15 years late on the plan. As I said to somebody, I'm not too good in the old figures when I'm 15 years out on my retirement plan. Mm-hmm. But uh, things changed dramatically in my, my retirement plan in, as a result of 2008 and up to 12 and all of that. So I had I stayed put. But anyway, I was still very happy. But uh, no, now is the time to go, we think, because um, things were never better at the park. We were never in better condition. We have done uh, a three million pound development over the last three years on the park, the park and the Lansdowne. It's in pristine condition and it's all ready to go. Business is very good on the books for this coming season. We've had two very good seasons. So all in all, it's better to go out to the top. A lot of Irish family-run hotels go out when things are bad. Mm-hmm. So we, we think that we think it's a better time to go now. You're going and out and things are good. During the pandemic, we found. Tap times yourself was a great luxury, all right? You were able to go walking at 11 o'clock in the morning, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, whatever you wanted to do, because we were off for three months. And we kind of got to like that. And we realised that, listen, there's more to life than working seven days a week. You got a flavour of what that retirement might uh, look like. But John, the the other hotel, the Lansdowne, you're selling that as well, but you have the Drumquina Manor, so you're staying in the business. Yeah, we're staying in the business. Drunkwin and Manor will keep um, for ourselves as such. And um, that gives us more than we need in life. Um, and uh, as Francis said, selling the two hotels in Kenmare just gives us more time to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, all things considered, there's a life cycle in everyone's, uh, in hotels. And we think we're better off to go out on the top as to wait for that to go down. And we're just, to be honest with you, today is a very happy day for us um, because we have broken the news publicly, which has been in our minds for probably the last four years, but certainly in the last six months. Um, and it's out there and it's a, it's a weight off the shoulders. And as a person said to me this morning, it's like reset DNA. It's just, it's a, it's, it's a different feeling today. But they're not sold. They're for sale. We don't know what the future holds. So um, we'll see what happens over the summer months and we'll take it from there. Yeah, a bit of sadness, I'm sure, though, John, too. I mean, this is part of your DNA. It's part yeah. of, of who you both are. And the people who work there and the people who yeah. came to stay there over the years, they're your family, really, aren't they? Yeah. A hundred percent. And it's funny because, um, well, we have four staff, which is over 40 years, which is as long as Francis is in the hotel. So their life commitment is to the Park Hotel. And then we have about 15 staff over 20 years. So it's a phenomenal um, legacy to have. And it's difficult to deal with that today because they have all lives, they have families, they have houses. They are all based in Kenmare and they're only in Kenmare, um, as some of them said to me, because of us. So that's not easy to do that, but ever, that's just the way life is mm-hmm. and you get on with it. But we have the Lansdowne, um, which we bought in 2021, I think it was, um, has turned a corner and just two properties are in really good condition. And when we look at it and when you step back and you look at family hotels and the tradition of the transition of family hotels, um, everything just lent, lent towards the decision that has been made and um, we'll see what the future holds. And Francis, telling the staff is one thing and I'm sure that was um, emotional uh, for you but then telling your guests, the ones who would return to you every year, you did that too? 
I spent the day on the phone yesterday ringing all regular guests. That like, now, of course, I missed somebody. I know I did because you can't remember everything, all right? But I rang like loads and loads of people yesterday that would come every year. Some of them are coming, were coming to stay today. In fact, tonight there's one couple in that come regularly. Uh, so I rang all them yesterday after four o'clock and told them that, that it would be on the paper today because they didn't want them to find, uh, like to see it in the paper and not realise that, mm-hmm. you know, we had spoke to them. But all of them were very understanding and realised that like we had, I had given 43 years to the park constant every day all day every day and they understand fully so their, their only wish was that our hope would be that it would stay the same and that it would be something that we would hope that whoever takes over the park would have the ethos that we had in the last 42 years But Francis isn't moving out of the area I live in Kenmare like I live in the grounds of the hotel I have an apartment yeah Yeah. Um, I, so I'm, we're not leaving I'm not leaving Kenmare I have no notion of it Oh yeah but like you'll have to move from where you're, you currently are if, no, once it's sold No I bought this Claire I bought it Oh, you bought. Okay, so you'll be staying there. So whoever buys it, they'll have to put up with Francis there, looking at them, saying, "Look, there's dust in that corner." And and he didn't get a discount there. No, I did not. All right, you are. Now that you mention it, John. No, on the grounds of the hotel, Claire, in two thousand and. Eight, we built 18 apartments which were sold to private individuals for their own private use and so we have 18 residents over there as such and Francis is one of them mm-hmm. That's, it, it's not in the hotel as such ah, it's so they'll, the they'll be unaffected it's talking about the past guest I, got a, I sent an email to a gentleman who's a second generation customer of the Park Hotel he's in his um, late 50s early 60s I suppose and I got a phone call at 4 o'clock in the morning and he said listen Johnny says I know it's the middle of the night but I just have to talk to you so uh-huh. that's really nice yeah from Florida but, um, yeah. isn't that lovely I mean I'm sure it's like hard that. it's, it, that's not easy John but it's, no. it's lovely that it means so much to people yeah, well, that yeah. is, that's, you know, I, I suppose that that man, Mr. Nipper now, who's, who's, his dad and mum came for many, many years and they all come and he still comes to play every year he plays golf, you know. So he's one of our regulars and it was, it was I didn't have a phone number for him. I said to John, have you Mr. Nipper's number because I haven't got it. Um, so John said he'd ring him. So I didn't I didn't yeah. hear, hear that until now. But that I, is... He, we, he, he, he came, Claire, because Mr. and Mrs. Nipper Sr. had a car crash at the front gate of the hotel in 1980 oh, yeah. and they were staying in Killarney and they came into the hotel in France has looked after them and ever since then Mr Nipper passed away probably 10 years ago now but right until their end of their lives they came for two weeks in May and two weeks in October every year twice every year yeah. from yeah. there yeah. twice every year yeah. and, yeah. and simply and when, because and when we were, I looked after when they had the car crash yeah. That's, I mean that's yeah. where we yeah. connected from you know mm-hmm. I remember and when, when we were John Mayer sorry yeah, yeah. and John well, Mayer my, my barman was going, was going up to Tralee to do his car license and I said call into the hospital to see those people will you because you know they're like there's no they don't know anybody and just say you're from the park and hope that they're doing well which John did do right and uh, they came to and then when they got, were released from hospital they couldn't fly home because they had a broken leg and whatever else okay and they came and stayed for the park and then we have a lifelong relationship ever since then so Gosh, yeah. the, the bit of kindness and how it was repaid Absolutely. over all of those yeah, years exactly. yeah. and um, actually when we were building the spa I went to New Jersey to Monroe in New Jersey to meet Mr Nipper Mrs Nipper had passed away at that stage and we went to um, meet him to talk to him about the spa because he was he, he typified the, the, the client of the Park Hotel and I knew that if I had a chat with him I would have a barometer on whether it's a good idea or a bad idea to build a spa so I explained it all to him and he says Johnny says no one in my life has seen me in my birthday suit except my wife he said there's no way I'm going into a spa and I said listen bear with me so anyway he came anyway and ever since we had a girl here at the time Margo 
a therapist and for twice during his stay, once a week when he'd come, he'd go for a treatment in the spa. Right, He's, he got over that. Yeah, we co- we yeah. converted and him. So listen, John, you're staying in the business uh, with Drumquina, but, but Francis, will you miss all of that? Well, I'll miss the day-to-day because, you know, when you do something, no more than yourself, Claire, you get up every morning that mad hour that you get up at, God bless you, but you get up every day and you go to work for 42 years, do you know? Yeah. And the car will want, to, when we come up Main Street and turn right, the car will want to go left into the hotel, but now it has to go on straight. Mm-hmm. So it will be a bit of a wrench, all right? But yeah, I'm very good at departmentalising. They laugh at me. John, what are you doing with the phone? <laughs> I mean, it's like... Oh, they're going to fight now. Well, someone is, someone is like in a hayfield doing we something. A, we have a public row. You're going to get huge ratings for this show, Claire. <laughs> right. He's rattling John, are you rattling the phone? I agree with you, Francis. I think he is rattling the phone. Yeah, he is, yeah. I no, shall stand it, still. It, yeah, stay quiet, John, for a minute, all right? But the, what do you call it? Um, the car will want to turn into the park and it will have to go on street. So, you know, but as I said, I, I just saying when I was interrupted, um, I departmentalised things and that's, we've done that. Okay, that's great. I'm 70 now. I I have a new book coming out in September on ageing gracefully for all of those that need a copy. And I, we still work, we're working at the moment on At Your Service for next year. And we're also, I'm, I'm also, well, Dun Stores are opening a new store in Dundrum in October, which is a huge job. I'm involved in that because I have a big department within that store. So you'll so be busy. This, you'll, you'll still I be busy. I won't be idle. The Brennan brothers, Francis and John from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, a conversation about style, colour and making a home in Galway. The brilliantly named Virtue Shine was Ryan Tuberty's guest. Virtue, nice to see you. <laughs> Thanks for coming. You came to us from Galway. I did. From Is it Barna? Are you living in Barna? Barna? Yes. Yeah, OK, so you're just out, just outside the city of Galway. Yes, I am. OK, uh, you've been living there how long now? Um, I've been in Barna six years now. Six years? Yeah. By way of New York? By way of? Well, from Ghana, New York, and then here. Yeah. Yeah, and then okay. Galway. So your story is geographically uh, threefold. So let's <laughs> investigate the trio. Okay. So you got you got those three parts to it. So let's let's go to Ghana for starters. Yes. Okay. Where is Ghana? What sort of a country is it? And tell us a bit about your early life there. So um, Ghana is in West Africa, mm-hmm. and um, it's kind of nestled between Nigeria and Togo. Um, I was born there till I was 15. Ghana is beautiful. It's hot. It's very colourful. And we're all around really good sound people. You know the way like in Ireland you say, oh, your gas crack and you drink too much and you, you know, all, the, all these cliches. What are, the, yeah. what are the, the, the cliches from your country? Oh, gosh, let me see. Do I remember? Um, you're fine, oh, you know, like, you know, like you're fine, oh, that means you're all around like good person. Okay. You know? So it's, and everything has an oh at the end that just, you know, exaggerates the, the like, fineness okay, of the so person. So. Gives it a bit of a twist. Yeah. Uh, and you left there, did you say at 15? I right? left at 15, yes. And can I ask you why or is that? Um, well, my mother moved to New York and um, really uh, when parents leave uh, Ghana to um to come abroad, they they go and they settle, they work, save a bit of money, and then bring their children yeah. uh, over for a better life, better education. We did that for years, Irish people. Ah. Um, you know, and when we when we had to put a flag in another country for a little while and right. then send the money back and uh, hopefully bring others with, with, with along the way. So ah. it's not it's not uncommon okay. in our in our history. So we have that shared story in right. that regard. Well, what so, do you know? So what part of New York were you in? Um, I moved to well, we moved to the Bronx, uh, South Bronx. 
Okay, lovely. And yeah. tell me about life in New York. Um, well, life in New York, I was I was quite young, but I have to say moving from Ghana to New York was, you know, it was almost like living in a different world, you know, leaving one fantastic world to a place where you kind of had to start all over because you do know what to expect, even mm. though you've seen it in the movies, you know, on the te- television, read about it. I We came in December of 87, and no one told me how cold it was. Yeah, well, that's a big so, leap now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we arrived, and it was freezing. And then, of course, I, I got a flu. You know, yeah. a few days later, I didn't understand why. But then, you know, I suppose, and also saw the snow for the first time, which was big. You know, no one really told us about snow, you know, to expect the snowfall and how cold and how to walk and in how it, much how to wrap it up. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, Ice and that kind of stuff. I remember when I was a kid seeing New York for the first time. But when I say we shared that story, I meant we Irish, Irish people. Irish not people, me personally. Yes. I hope you didn't think that. <laughs> but let me, let me go. But seeing New York for the first time yeah. was... I felt oh, like, you know, it, it, didn't you? Like the, the, the height of the buildings and the magical. cars and the yellow cabs. and It's something else. So what magical. was it like for you? It was magical. I mean, seeing the lights, that's one thing I'll never forget. Uh, we came in December, mm. just before Christmas. So, of course, the lights on Fifth Avenue, you know, the, the trees, the light. It was just, it was magical. And Virtue spoke about her absolute love of colour. Colour is therapy, you know, colour is, is happiness, colour is fun, colour is joy. Um, and I like to share colour, yeah. you know, I think I see the world in, in, in colours. Um, the brighter, the better, the more vibrant, the more joyful, you know, so um, colours are really, really important and to when, me. As and as a youngster then in New York, when did you just, when did you realise colours and maybe fashion were something that would collide and become something very meaningful to you? Actually... Funny enough, I I never knew that I'll end up I was gonna end up in fashion. You mm. know, I always loved fashion. You know, I mean, I grew up with my my, my grandmother who um, had a, a fabric um, wholesale warehouse in in Ghana. So I was you know I was around fabrics um, all the time, and and we always had loads um, of them. Um, I just I didn't realize I was going to end up in the in the industry. You know, working with the prints, working with 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 in in fashion. Sure. With the prints. Um, but I suppose it's always been there, you know, my grandmother traded in it, my my mom and then and then me by by accident really. It all happened Okay. Um, by accident. Let, let's go to um that uh, Thanksgiving night where you decided to go to a bar for <laughs> I don't know, a drink or something. Like. Um That's really w- Daniela's fault. Well what happened? So <laughs> Um so um I we went we had um we went to a friend's house. We had Thanksgiving dinner in Jersey. And then on the way home, my roommate and uh, Daniela uh, has always been asking me to, you know, to go to this Irish pub. and In New York. In New York, right around the corner from a house in Soho. But knowing Daniela, she never goes in for one, ever. So, Where was she from? <laughs> she was um, Irish-Italian, actually. Irish-Italian, okay. Yeah. Got the best of both worlds there. Yeah. Can you remember yeah. the name of the bar? It was Tom and Jerry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Tom and Jerry, I think it was on Mott. Mott and, yeah. and Houston. Yeah, I've, I've um, been there, yeah. Oh, have you? Yeah, go, keep no going. Way. Yeah, go on. Um, so, <laughs> so in, we walked, I was wearing this, my, you know, I was, I'm always dressed up. No, I'm explain all, what I, you were wearing. So right? I was, I was wearing, I, I was wearing a red coat. I was wearing, I think, jeans and, mm. and a black turtleneck sweater. And then I had on this fedora, this black and white fedora with leather kind of tilted. And I walked to the bar 
Daniela went to the back as she normally does and this guy walked up to me and said, nice hat. And I said, oh, thank you. And then he said, can I buy you a drink? I said, no, I don't think that your wife or girlfriend there would, um, would that. like that. Yeah. Um, he said, oh, no, 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 that's not that's not my wife or girlfriend. She's my sister. And I went, right, okay, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, no, no, actually, she is my sister. Yeah, so the passports so, <laughs> came out. <and> yeah, <laughs> so, so we started talking, and then um, the sister came over. It, it turns out, actually, that he'd been to Ghana. Uh, oh, before. no. Yeah. And where so, was he from? He's from Dublin. Oh, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. he's from Dublin. Um, he went to uni in, in, in Galway. So we started talking about politics. We started talking about Rawlings. Now, he's a big Rawlings, Rawlings fan. I wasn't because, um, you know, I lived during the uh, Rawlings um, era. So we started chatting and we just talked about, we, we, I think we spent a whole night talking. Yeah. So we talked about everything. And he'd and been to Ghana. He'd been to Ghana. I don't yeah. know anyone else who'd been to Ghana, weirdly. He, well, neither did I. sheltered existence. <laughs> and um, so that must have been a great opener conversation. It was. It was nice. It was really nice. It was cold and I was kind of cranky as well. So, <laughs> you know, because I was tired and I yeah. didn't really want to be in a bar. But, but debating you know. about a former president. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, we got talking and we talked for, for a long time and I was about to leave. And then he he ended up giving me all his, his contact numbers. He gave me his phone number, his fax number, his email. His burner phone. <laughs> if he had one, he probably would have given it to me too. <laughs> he probably would by the sounds of it. Yeah. He was quite taken by you. Yeah, so, so uh, yeah, and then uh, he called me and we went out for um, tapas at a restaurant called The Bell Jar, actually, in yeah. the Meatpacking District. And that was 20-something years ago. Yeah. And he's now my husband. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah. So you stayed on in New York together. What, can we ask, can I ask his name? Billy. Billy. Yes. So yourself. So he is he Billy Shine. He is Billy Shine. And your first name is Virtue. Yes. And you became Virtue Shine. <laughs> I mean, you could not have I made. Know. You could have bought this I name know, off the internet. I know. I know. People. People sometimes think I make it. I'm like, no. Actually, yeah. before before I say it, I said I'm going to say it now. If that's my name. <laughs> it's my real name. <laughs> that's not disgusting. <laughs> so Ryan asked Virtue about the decision to move to Ireland. When we started a family. Um, we knew that we were we, we were going to leave um, New York to Quiet. come to Ireland because um, Billy really wanted to raise his kids in in Ireland in Ireland in Galway specifically. Um, I, we didn't know where. Okay, we just uh, he just knew, and so um, so we made the decision. I guess when I was pregnant with our third child, uh, Liam, and at uh, thirty four weeks, at thirty four weeks pregnant, we moved here. Um, to to Ireland, to Galway. Why do we do this to ourselves? I don't know. Why do we do as humans beings go, you're going to have a baby, you're going to move house, you're going to, you know, uh, go on a holiday. You know, people do do the most bizarre things in in threes and fours and you're inviting this horror into your life. It was, but you know what? I wish he said to me now before we moved, Mm. it rains a lot in Galway. And I said, yeah, I know. Well, it rains everywhere. And he said, no, no, actually it rains a lot. And I said, yeah, okay. I wished I, that I had researched <laughs> <You didn't, laughs> and investigated I, myself. I tell you, hats off to him for full disclosure meteorologically. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he wasn't he wasn't uh, selling a pop anyway, that's for sure. No, I mean, we, we'd visited before, but, yeah. you know, it, it's different when you visit. Yes, than, it's than charming then. Exactly. Yes, not you know, relentless. No. Mm. Oh, no, definitely So what was not. it like for you then? Now we're gone from the, the sunshine and the heat and the colour of Ghana to the... You know, the mean streets of New York, mm. all, albeit kind of funky and, yeah, and interesting. Yeah, really funky and fashionable, yeah. And now, God of, like, you know, the the, the, <sighs> the, the, the unforgiving, teeming rain of Galway. Uh, 
Tell me about your first few weeks there with your, Ooh. with your, you know, you were pregnant and uh, long down the road in it. And here we yeah. go, big changes in yeah. your life. Big changes. Well, first of all, when we arrived, everything was frozen. The pipes were frozen. Um, so there was no shower. There was there was no nothing and it was cold. Welcome um, to Ireland. Exactly. Uh, that, that, that was exactly. your big welcome. Yeah. I think we arrived and I thought the first thing that entered my mind was what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can feel that. You know, and yeah. but then I knew that it was it was too late. There was no turning back. <laughs> you know, I I think the kids alone, you know, that 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 travel that long journey was they were they were not going to do that again anytime yeah. soon. Um so we we arrived. It was really, really cold. We moved in with my in-laws for um, six weeks, um, and I have to say, it was it was re- it was a really tough time. Okay, you know, because I didn't really you, know yeah. anybody. I mean, I left. I we moved here, and I didn't know anyone no. at all. I had no friends, nobody. Um, so it was it was tough. You know, it was tough. And um, how did you cope with that? Because uh, you know, we were talking last week with a guest, Shanette, um, who was talking about moving from the States to here and the loneliness of being mm. um, a stranger in your hometown, as it were. Um, New hometown. I, I, to be honest, I don't really know if I coped with it, with it well. Um, the, I remember the only thing that lifted me was I actually, I ran after a lady who's actually my friend now because mm. I had found out that she had a son uh, same age as my second one. Okay. So and I knew that she dropped him off, um, you know, in the, in the preschool yeah. next to where my my in laws were living. So I timed when she would walk out, and one day I waited and I had on my red coat, heavily pregnant, and I ran after her. Yeah, you ambushed down. her, didn't you? I, I you did totally. You I, hid I, I in the totally. I stalked her, and then and then and then, <laughs> and, then I, and then I ambushed her. So I ran down. Okay. And she turned around, probably looked at me, and went, "Who is this crazy lady?" And I said, "I'm really sorry." You know, I don't mean to disturb you, but we're new here and I heard that, you know, your son is the same age as my son. Is it possible for us to arrange some kind of a play date and we can, you know, have tea and coffee and stuff like that? Luckily, she said yes. Yeah. And I think it was really um, just her for a really long time. And then slowly, you know, I started kind of getting to know people um, bit by bit, really also through, um, you know, through the colors, my colors. What do you mean and by that? Well, I think when uh, when we moved here, I don't know. I don't think African prints was so much on display here. I mean, I know people knew about it, yeah. but it wasn't really something that was on display. I mean, yeah. I wore African prints. I wore African prints throughout, you know. But not that common, is it? But no. Because it's so, it's so bright. You're wearing it today. I can't wait to sh- for everyone to see a photograph when we're finished our conversation because uh-huh. you, it's so bright. I met you before we came in. Yeah. I said yeah. the sun came out twice today. <laughs> no, but I really meant that. It was like, boom. I yeah, was, I was, I was, yeah, yeah. It's so striking. That's actually, the feeling I like to form, give. Though. That's the feeling yeah, I like yeah, to yeah. give. Yeah, yeah, It's a really know? good vibe. Yeah. Yeah, bringing the sunshine in the morning. Virtue shine on the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, a fascinating chat about art, missing masterpieces and a whole lot of money. Back in August of 1990, in a Dublin Jesuit father's dining room, a major discovery was made. Caravaggio's painting, The Taking of Christ, dating from 1602 and which was missing for decades, was hanging on the wall. Now, from Picasso to Van Gogh, many artistic treasures have disappeared over the centuries. And to talk about the most famous of those, I'm joined now by art historian Jessica Fahey. Good morning, Jessica. 
Morning, Claire. How are you? Very well. Lovely to have you with us. Now, the taking of the Christ, the discovery of that back in 1990, as I mentioned there, that was very uh, extraordinary, wasn't it? That that ended up in Ireland in the way that it did. Tell us the story. Absolutely. So you just have to sort of put yourself in the place of Sergio Benedetti from the National Gallery being called up to the Jesuits just to have a look at the paintings they have. And all of a sudden, he's looking at this work and he starts to realise that it might be an original by Caravaggio. It had been mislabeled on the frame and given to Gerrit von Honthorst, a Dutch follower of Caravaggio. We actually have a lovely work by him in the National Gallery of a Musical Party. Um, but his nickname, Gerardo Donati, which is in English just Gerard of the Night, was misspelt on the frame, which again raised a bit of an eyebrow. Um, and then the more that they sort of looked at it and examined it and cleaned it, they started to realise it might have been the original. So ultimately, the way it got to the Jesuits was through an Irish paediatrician called Mary Lee Wilson. And um, she had purchased it in 1924 in Scotland, and it had been in the collection of a Scottish collector from around 1802 onwards. So they had a good provenance on it as well, because it had come from the Matei family who had originally owned it or commissioned the work from Caravaggio. Um, so then um, uh, Lee Wilson ends up giving it to the Jesuits after her husband was assassinated by Michael Collins during the war. Well, Michael Collins and his uh, um, uh, army, if you like, uh, during the War of Independence. And then as a thanks to them, the Jesuits for looking after her in that difficult time, she gives them the painting. So they all thought it was a Honthorst from the time it was sold from 1802 onwards. And as I say, only due to cleaning and more examination and research was it attributed to Caravaggio and then unveiled in the National Gallery in 1993. And we have another recent example in this country as well from earlier this month when a a 300-year-old painting was found in the cathedral in Waterford, Waterford Cathedral. Now, I know work is ongoing on that, but how likely is that to be a missing masterpiece, Jessica? Oh, I mean, it would be fantastic (laughs) if it was, but I have to say it's unlikely. I mean, what they've discovered about it so far is still very interesting. So they're dating it to around the 1730s. They think it might be a depiction um, of the medieval cathedral that was in Waterford before it was rebuilt in the 1770s. So it will probably have as much value as a historical document than necessarily as a famous work of art. Okay, I was reading last night about all this excitement around the two rediscovered Rembrandts that are coming to auction soon, Mm -hmm. 200 years after they were last seen in public. Now, the price that's expected to be paid for those, between 6 and 10 million US dollars. So tell us about these ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so these uh, ultimately are a companion piece, um, uh, two portraits of an elderly couple uh, Jan Williams van Plown and his wife Yapin Carols, and they were related actually to Rembrandt. Um, his cousin married their son, and um, so we have a lovely. I'll meet you at Rembrandt and the to the Covenant already looked. So they were related to him, uh, distant relations, yeah. but these paintings were missing for two hundred years. Well, they were just in a private collection, so not exactly missing, but they hadn't declared, I suppose, that they had them or recognised them as being 
by Rembrandt. Mm-hmm. So that's ultimately uh, the big issue here. But they seem to be authentic. So the big prices will definitely be there. And Claire asked Jessica about the money some of this art fetches. Paintings, they get lost because they're falling out of fashion or in that Rembrandt instance, they're just kept by somebody who hasn't declared them. They still manage mm-hmm. to make an awful lot of money, but people aren't 100% sure whether they're authentic or not. How does that happen? Yes. So this is uh, due to often over time, just loss of provenance. So we don't know where it's gone from original description or original inventory. Overpainting, um, overzealous restoration can change the look of a work. But I suppose the most famous one is from 2017, a sale uh, for a work attributed to Leonardo called the Salvador Mundi, which is the saviour of the world. And that went for 450 million which is a huge amount of money. Extraordinary, extraordinary. Um, that instance, though, um, there was criticism, wasn't there, of the Salvador Mundi being overly restored? Yes, exactly. So when they started to strip back the overpainting, they realised that you could see that there were what we call impedimenti, which are changes that an artist makes as they go along, which usually suggests it's the original work. But um, in this case here, once they started then to restore it, they covered up those sort of details and ultimately the restoration maybe hides a little bit more of the truth. And a lot of people don't really believe that it's by um, Leonardo, but because it was part of an uh, exhibition in, 19, or sorry, in 2010 in London, um, attributed to Leonardo, then it got the stamp of approval. So it went from a painting that was sold for about 2000 dollars to be sold for 450 mm-hmm. million dollars. Mm-hmm. Art historian Jessica Fahey from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ray Darcy show, Monica Haichi, a writer on the TV series Schitt's Creek, was chatting about her work and heading to Dublin for the International Literature Festival. Monica, good afternoon. And of course, you're an author, as in you write books, and you're a comedy writer, as in you're in the writer's room of Schitt's Creek. Good afternoon, Monica. Hi there. Yeah, great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, congratulations on the book, which is called... Really good, actually. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> There's no thank you. It's just called Really Good, comma, actually. <laughs> uh, and is that how Maggie describes herself? Really good, actually? Yeah, I think the title... It's, so it's the, the novel is about a woman going through a divorce at a very unexpectedly young age. And I think the title is about the difference between how we say we're doing and how we're mm. actually doing. Yes. Do you know when people say, how are you? You can't give them the truth, can you? <laughs> Maybe that's a cultural difference. <laughs> no, they don't want it either. <laughs> no, that's true. People are sort of expecting you to say, oh, fine, and yeah. you, and then you carry on regardless yeah, yes, of how yeah. devastated in, inside both of you are that day. Yeah. Um, so, so Maggie is not you, but based on you. Uh, her experiences or her emotions are based on my emotions. I went through a divorce at a young age myself Mm. and I knew I didn't want to write a memoir. Um, so I had to create a kind of fictional container for some of the feelings that I felt. Uh Aha. And comedy allows you to go off and, uh, maybe behave the way you might have thought. Is that, is that? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I relate to a lot of Maggie's impulses, um, from that period in my own life, but I think that the difference between writing a fictional comedy character and, you know, living life with actual consequences in it is that Maggie kind of acts on all of those impulses, which was very cathartic to write. Yeah. Now, you were together with your eventual husband, now ex-husband, for how long? 
Uh, we were together almost a decade, so Gosh. most of my 20s. Yeah. yeah, your formative years. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And you've probably given this an awful lot of thought, uh, even before writing the book. <laughs> what should you have been doing or would you have been doing if you weren't with him in your 20s? I mean, it's almost an impossible question to mm-hmm. answer. And I think one of the things that's so destabilizing about a long-term breakup is that suddenly you almost feel like you have to re-choose your life's trajectory. Um, it can be easy to sort of default into your shared life with your partner and not ask too many questions about what you yourself want as an individual. And then suddenly you're not part of that partnership anymore. And you're the only person who's, um, wants, thoughts, opinions, needs to be taken into consideration. So, so I would imagine late 20s, average age in our country when people get married is in early 30s. Yes. Uh, now, so I'd imagine it's similar in Canada. Yes, it was a fantastic timing on my part to be getting divorced right when everyone I knew was getting engaged. So that's isolating. Yeah, it wasn't ideal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so you, you like, like most people, probably maybe would go, if they could afford it and if they were inclined, go to counselling or therapy. Um, mm-hmm. But you did you did a double-pronged attack. You did that and you wrote a book as well. So, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I did the therapy first. I think I didn't want writing the book to be, it was in some ways therapeutic, but I didn't want to be using it as therapy. I wanted to kind of use therapy as therapy, process my experiences, mm-hmm. figure out what I had done wrong, what I had done right, and what I would do differently, and then write, use that information to write a funny book. Uh, had the world changed? Because people are describing this as a, a, a Bridget Jones in the social media age. Um, <laughs> you know, when, when you were in that long-term relationship, like technology came on exponentially, didn't it? Yeah, I was particularly interested um, in the reality for such a small group of people. Um, But in my generation, if you found a relationship in high school or even early university, um, there wasn't dating apps. They didn't exist. Mm. And so you found yourself single again for the first time trying to figure that out. And on top of that, the way that we meet and date and uh, become involved with people had changed completely um, and you were sort of several years behind figuring out how all of those things worked. Monica Haichi on The Ray Darcy Show. And that's it for Playback Daily so mind yourself till next time.